some of you may be aware that earlier this week there was a minor media frenzy concerning someone the press described, and I quote, an obscure Scottish preacher. No, it wasn't me or John, but a man who was born almost 130 years ago. In an interview, Laura Bush, the First Lady, wife of President George W. Bush, revealed that the President of the United States began each day by reading an excerpt from a book called My Utmost for His Highest by one Oswald Chambers, the obscure Baptist preacher from Scotland. Who was he? Why would the most powerful man in the world want to be reading the media wanted to know. So at 8.45 on Tuesday morning, I received a phone call from BBC Scotland asking if they could interview me and ask these questions. When do you want to do the interview? I asked, dreaming of a chauffeur-driven trip into Edinburgh or to some fancy studio. Well, said the man, we go off the air in 15 minutes' time. So can we ring you back in 10 minutes? Yes, I said in great faith. But thankfully, our honorary elder, Ian Balfour, had already answered similar questions for an article in the Scotsman magazine, which appeared that morning, and was able to supply me with the answers I needed, which I attempted in a somewhat feeble way to give. And the full-page write-up in the Scotsman, if you didn't see it, get a copy of last Tuesday's Scotsman. The whole of page three was devoted to this story, a summary of the life of Oswald Chambers and his book, my utmost for his highest, which I suspect, and said on the radio in great faith, most people of my age and older would know the book and who he was. I suspect most of the younger generation would have little idea. Although the title, My Utmost for His Highest, is the motto for our YPM, our Young People's Group. Here's the headline that appeared in The Scotsman. I don't have the monitor, so it's up there on the screen. Bush's inspiration... Scottish preacher he reads before breakfast every day. An obscure Baptist preacher from Scotland who died 86 years ago has been revealed as the spiritual inspiration for the US President George Bush as he prepares to lead his country to war in Iraq. So, for those who don't know, didn't read the article and didn't listen to the radio on Tuesday morning, here's a summary about Oswald Chambers who was born in 1874 in Aberdeen, the fourth son of a Baptist minister. Converted and baptised under a a Baptist minister who was very well known, C.H. Spurgeon. He became a lecturer in the Baptist College in Dunoon in logic, moral philosophy and psychology. Was active in Christian ministry. He preached from this pulpit. Uh, Hang on a minute, I'll think about this. Maybe it was this pulpit or the one before it. But anyway, he preached in this church uh, quite regularly. He travelled extensively to places as far afield as Japan, the United States founded a Bible college in London, in Clapham. And then at the outbreak of the First World War, he volunteered to be a military chaplain with the YMCA. He served with the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force in Egypt. And he had a powerful effect on the troops with his presence and his preaching. And after only two years' service, he died in Egypt from appendicitis on November the 15th, 1917. His wife collected and edited his sermon materials, quite a few books. If you look on the internet, there are pages of references to Oswald Chambers. 
And the most famous book of all is My Utmost for Its Highest, which still sells in millions in America, if lesser known here. I've picked up a copy of the whole of the New King James Version and its commentary for pound fifty in one of those cheapy bookshops that are always going to close tomorrow. You know the one I mean? <laughs> Amazingly, the Scotsman also printed, without comment or criticism, the whole of Oswald Chambers' commentary for that day. It said, this is what President Bush will be reading this morning. And it's amazingly appropriate to the President and surprisingly to us this evening for the verse he quotes is written by the man who wrote 1 Corinthians, the book we've been studying, the Apostle Paul. And it's based on the words of the Apostle Paul from Acts 20, verse 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And the title, this is all in the Scotsman, never have got them to print this any other way other than God's providence. It says, is this true of me? Let me just read the first part of it and think about this. The president was reading this and all the readers of the Scotsman, I hope, as well. This is what Oswald Chambers says on this verse. It is easier to serve or work for God without a vision and without a call because then you are not bothered by what God requires. Common sense covered with a layer of Christian emotion becomes your guide. You may be more prosperous and successful from the world's perspective and will have more leisure time if you never acknowledge the call of God. But if once you receive a commission from Jesus Christ, the memory of what God asks of you will always be there to prod you on to do His will. You will no longer be able to work for Him on the basis of common sense. What do I count my life as dear to myself? If I have not been seized by Jesus Christ, and have not surrendered myself to him, I will consider the time I decide to give to God dear and my own ideas of service as dear. I will also consider my own life as dear to myself. But Paul said he counted his life dear so that he might fulfill the ministry God had given him. And he refused to use his energy on anything else. This verse shows an almost noble annoyance by Paul at being asked to consider himself. He was absolutely indifferent to any consideration other than that of fulfilling the ministry he had received. And there's quite a bit more as well. I think Oswald Chambers would have been pleased to be referred to as an obscure Baptist preacher from Scotland. For he practiced what he preached. And was like the Apostle Paul, absolutely indifferent to any consideration other than that of fulfilling the ministry God had given him. And that's why he died in Egypt in 1943 in relative obscurity. Now, unfortunately, it is not just the media who have a distorted view of Christian ministry and service. Even Christians and churches are infected with the same malaise. None more so than the Christians in the church at Corinth that Paul wrote this letter to. And Paul's concern for them and for us was that they should, in the words of our title, make sure that they are keeping first things first. And the particular theme he addresses in these opening chapters, if you've been with us in the series, is the wrong view they had of Christian leadership and leaders. And he draws this to a conclusion, if you come now to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. So then, he says, in view of what we've already written, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It will help to have the Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. Make sure you have one. Page 1146. 
1 Corinthians 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you, re- if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might become kings for you, with you. For it seems to me that God has put as apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love, and with a gentle spirit? This is God's word. Very simply then, if you look at the passage in front of us, these 21 verses... I want to suggest that Paul describes his own role as a pastor and teacher with three descriptions which contrast sharply with the wrong impression that the Christians in Corinth had got about Christian leaders and service. Three authentic models of Christian ministry which challenge us today as well. The first in the first seven verses is a picture of a steward and his master. If you were here in our last study, we saw that Paul asked a question about himself, the man who planted the church in Corinth, and Apollos, the man who came along later and taught the Christians, and as it were, watered the seed of God's word in the lives of these Christians in Corinth. Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? If you look at verse 5, his answer is, Only servants through whom you came to believe. And I pointed out last time that the word servant there is the word used of a simple table waiter. Someone who serves in a menial way in a home. 
who delivers up the food, if you like, to the family or the guests sitting at table. And I suggested that if you're in Christian ministry, you are simply a waiter in God's restaurant. However, while that word servant is true of status or lack of it, such a view is open to misinterpretation. And such people are open to abuse by the customers. And that was one of the problems with the Christians in Corinth. They thought, okay, if Paul is just a waiter, then he's at our beck and call. And we can tell him what to do, and we can complain when we don't like the service. And in order to correct this impression and attitude, in chapter 4, Paul shifts the emphasis somewhat. And he begins chapter 4 by saying, men ought to regard us as servants. But the word for servant here is a different word to the word that he used in chapter 3, verse 5. The word used here in chapter 4 was originally the word used of a rower in one of those Greek galleys, or Roman galleys. You ever seen Ben-Hur? Nod your heads if anybody's still here, right? You know the film where where Ben-Hur gets sent to the galleys? Well, this is a word used of one of the rowers in the bottom of the boat. All right? An under-rower in a Greek trireme, three banks of oars on each side. And it then came to mean the word used of anyone who served in a lowly position, but the emphasis was that such a person needed to take his directions from the person who was controlling the boat. I don't know what the correct word is. But you know in the films, there's a guy at the front who beats a drum and everybody's supposed to row to the rhythm that he sets. A bit like a cox, you know, in the Oxford and Cambridge boat race. All right? So if I can extend the meaning far beyond what Paul ever intended, think of that person sitting in the galley, pulling on the oars, He's not meant to be looking at the person next to him and saying, I'm doing a better job than you are. No, his role is to listen and watch the conductor, the steersman, the cox, whatever you call him. It is to row to the beat of the drum of the man in the front of the galley as he sets the rhythm and pace at which the boat is to go. Now, the Christians in Corinth had got it wrong. They thought they were setting the pace. They thought they were in charge. But Paul says... Although we are your servants, you are not our masters. No, we are accountable to God and we must row or march to the beat of his drum and none other. And to emphasise the point, Paul then goes on in chapter 4 verse 1 to use another word about service. Look what he says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. The word those entrusted with is another noun. Literally it means men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the secret things of God. The word used there is the word of a steward who was in charge of a large household in a Greek or Roman house, you know, with a big house and maybe an estate and things like that. This person was in charge of the property relating to other servants, but his primary responsibility was to his master. He was accountable to the master for how he behaved. He was entrusted with responsibility. Paul says, if you are in Christian ministry, you are entrusted, he says, with the secret things of God. We've seen this before. It it literally means God has revealed his secret plan, hidden for long ages, 
through Jesus Christ it's done. The secret of the gospel of how men and women can come to faith in Christ and be reconciled to God. And he says, God has entrusted us with that responsibility. When we came to Corinth, that was what we shared with you. But one day we will be judged. Not by what you think about us. We are accountable to God. Like the master calls the steward and he says, right, I want to do an accounting. Have you spent the money? Have you spent your time? You are accountable to me. And the main criterion you're judged on, if you are a Christian, is faithfulness. Faithfulness means doing what the Master told you to the best of your ability, with all the resources that he's entrusted to you, so that when you stand before him, you can give a good accounting. So Paul says, I'm frankly not bothered what you Corinthians think about my performance. I'm not a people pleaser. In fact, he says, I don't even trust my own judgment about myself. He says, as far as I can tell, my conscience is clear. I've done what God asked me. But he says, I can't be absolutely certain. Your conscience is never a final, reliable guide. He says, the only thing that matters is that one day, I will stand before God. He will open the books. He will have every fact available to him. And it is his judgment that counts. I will be judged on my faithfulness by God and not men. And so the only thing that really matters is God's praise and commendation. Leon Morris writes in his commentary, the preachers were indeed the stewards of the Corinthians, but the Corinthians were not their masters. Their only master is God. So it is a very small matter what the Corinthians think of them, or for that matter, what anyone thinks of them. Now, that is very easy to say, but it is very hard to put into practice if you're involved in Christian ministry. And it is extremely challenging to those who pass judgments on people who are involved in any kind of Christian ministry or on fellow Christians in the church about how they do their jobs and about how they serve Christ. We look on and say, boy, I could do a better job of stewarding than that guy. Are they supposed to be singing? That song was a bit slow. See, there I'm doing it, see. And that preacher, goodness me, it's supposed to be finished by half past seven. It's already ten past. He's finished his first point yet. But there are far more serious issues. We all face criticism. And I tell you this, the more responsibility you have as a Christian the more critics you will have and sometimes the harder it is to face that. And if you're in any sort of Christian responsibility, can I tell you something? In the last analysis, even what you think about your performance doesn't count and what the rest of Charlotte Chapel or your friends think about it doesn't count. The only thing that really counts is that one day you'll stand before God and you'll give an account to Him. We are all accountable to God. One day, each one of us will stand before God. And he says, God will reveal the secret things. He'll reveal our motives, not just our actions. He'll reveal not only what we did, but why we did it. And I find that quite alarming. Because how many of us have got clear motives in what we do? And I will be judged ultimately, not on what the world calls successfulness, but on faithfulness. 
and how often we're infected by the way the world thinks. I have a friend I was at Bible college with. And after we left Bible college, I went to the mission field. He served in an inner city area of Liverpool. I visited it once and he said, whatever you do, don't leave your car outside here because the wheels will be gone by the time the church service is over. They had grills over the window because it got broken in and smashed. He stuck with it for 25 years. And it affected his health and his family and everything else. Now, let's be honest. I'm the pastor of Charlotte Chapel, which is a large church. People look on and they're compared to us and say, wow, he's more successful than him. Don't you believe it? When the books are opened, God may have a totally different verdict on my life and his life. He may well be more faithful than I've been with the gifts that God has given him. And each one of us is accountable to God. In his next letter, 2 Corinthians, it probably wasn't his next letter, but it's the next one in the book anyway, Paul says this, For we must all appear, this is writing to Christians now, not non-Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul says, look, I've applied these principles to myself and to Apollos. I'm using ourselves as an illustration of this fact, as I've sought to do just a moment ago. For the benefit, he says, of you, my brothers and sisters in Corinth, so that you may learn from us, don't go beyond what is written. No one's sure what exactly that means, whether it's some kind of saying he's referring to. It may just mean, so you don't go beyond what God reveals in his word. But what is clear is what follows. Look at verse 6. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you receive it, why do you boast of it as though you did not? Everything we have, all the talents we have, are simply gifts from God. In fact, Paul in verse 7 changes to the singular. Literally he says, who in the world do you think you are anyway? What was happening in the church in Corinth was a kind of a church version in the first century of Pop Idol. I know, down below you've not seen it, but those upstairs have, all right? <laughs> in which the Christians were rating their current teachers, and even Apollos, as better speakers or more sophisticated. Oh, I prefer Apollos. Great Greek rhetoric. Paul, well, he's just a little fellow. He's not very good, you know. Peter, he's my favourite because he was with Jesus, you know. And Paul says, there is no place for pride in other people. Because every person has only just received gifts from God. So there's nothing to boast about. Yes, the steward is accountable for how he uses those gifts, but he can take no credit for owning them. They are, to use the Greek word, the word for gifts, is charismata. Gifts of grace. So there is no place for boasting about yourself. Now, how this affects our society and the way we think in church life is, is sadly only too evident. Listen, I can't help it if I happen to have a bigger nose than you, and you can't help it if you're smaller than me. That's what we were born with. And the same applies to our gifts. If in any way I have a speaking or a singing gift or a gift of giving or administration or whatever, it's a gift. Now, the world says, if you're a great singer, then what you need to do is exploit that gift for your own benefit to earn as much money and praise as possible and to show you're a much better singer than anybody else on the same program, does it not? God says, it's a gift from me, so use it for the benefit of God's people so that God is praised 
and he benefit and other people benefit, not you. So, how do you view yourself and other Christians? With pride? With envy? Or simply with thankfulness to God? There is a whole world of difference between praising somebody and thanking God for somebody. I thank God for many of you for the gifts God has given you, when I see them in operation. I heard on this week of someone who was meeting with someone, encouraging them. I said, that's wonderful, that's great. Really pleased you're doing that. Those of you doing one-to-one Bible studies, the younger Christians, that's fantastic. God has given you that gift to get alongside and encourage someone. Some of you have got more money than the rest, and quietly I know some of you give gifts to other people. I say, wow, I thank God for you that you're doing that. You do it quietly and discreetly because you want to encourage somebody else. Whatever the gifts are, they're not for our own benefit. Now, it's a totally countercultural way that we operate as Christians, we should do. Sadly, in churches, it's not always the case. And this challenges us. We are simply stewards who are accountable to our masters. Gordon Fee comments, Grace leads to gratitude. Wisdom and self-sufficiency leads to boasting and judging. Grace has a levelling effect. Self-esteem has a self-exalting effect. Grace means humility. Boasting means one has arrived. And because their boasting reflects that attitude, Paul now turns to irony and even sarcasm in the next section to show them the folly of their boasting. So notice the second picture he uses. And the second two will be quicker than the first one, all right? The second one is an apostle and his sufferings in verses 8 to 13. Paul challenges with biting irony their self-sufficiency and their complacency and he contrasts the circumstances of the Corinthians with those of himself and his colleagues. Look what he says, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have become kings and that without us. How I wish you'd really become kings so that we might be kings with you. The word kings is literally our reigning. The Corinthians through those teaching them falsely, had taken the future blessings that God promises to his people and said, they're yours now in the present. Notice the word already. You've arrived. They thought they had all they were needed. Literally, they were full after you'd had a full meal and couldn't eat anything else. They thought they were rich, probably literally. And they were already reigning, having defeated the powers of darkness. And in contrast says, we apostles, we're just the opposite. He says, we're like those people in the picture of the Roman procession. You know, when the Romans conquered a nation, they brought back all the booty and the loot, the treasures, and they had a great procession through the streets of Rome. And at the back of the procession were the leading officials and kings and rulers from the conquered city, dragging themselves along with chains who were condemned to die in the arena. They were humiliated. And Paul says, that's what it's like being a genuine apostle of Christ. And he says, you Corinthians, you think you've arrived, but this is us, this is what we're like. We're not in the box seats, we're in the arena. He says, we've been made a spectacle. The Greek word is theatron, from which we get theatre. Not just to the watching world only, but even to the angels who look on in amazement. They are fools for Christ. In contrast, he says to you Corinthians, you think you're so wise. And every aspect of his life and ministry contrasts with the model that the Corinthians had adopted. He says, we're weak, you're strong. We're honoured, you are honoured, we are dishonoured. We go hungry and thirsty, you are full. We are brutally treated while you're accepted in society. We are homeless while you've got your nice houses. 
We work with our hands. Manual labor is a sign of shame in the Greek world. Yet we respond to cursing with blessing. We endure persecution. We answer kindly when slandered. And the present experience of Paul and his colleagues, notice what he says, up to this moment, to this very hour, he says, we're like the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. No, it's not a very nice picture of what it means to be in Christian ministry, is it? I wonder sometimes if we were more honest about it, how many people would volunteer, who maybe shouldn't volunteer, thinking it's all glory. But the point of it is this, not just the contrasting circumstances, implicit in it, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, which of these two models reflects the way of Christ? Which of these two models reflects the way of the cross? Everything he describes about himself is mirrored in the life of Jesus. Homeless, poor, despised, rejected, humiliated, made to walk the streets of Jerusalem, carrying his own cross, nailed to a cross. Which is the way of Christ? Now you say, well, it's absolutely obvious. Paul is absolutely right and the Corinthians are wrong. But you just look at the church today. Can you believe in our generation the so-called health and prosperity gospel has sprung up and is attracting numerous people. If you follow Christ, you'll be healthy and wealthy. I mean, it's just amazing. What does it say to the majority of Christians in the world who live in the poor parts of the world who will never be wealthy and many of whom suffer great sickness and illness because of the conditions they live in? But closer to home, what does it say to us in our relative ease in the West? Our desire to be accepted by society. Obscure Baptists, don't they know we're the biggest denomination in America? So what? When are the world's criteria used to judge our Christian experience? And is it any wonder, by contrast, that in these parts of the world where the church is suffering, marginalised, humiliated, the church of Jesus Christ is growing astronomically? Michael Green comments, the church in the West will probably remain flaccid and effete until it is called on to suffer. We ourselves are likely to learn the most significant lessons of our lives through suffering. If Jesus had to tread this path, there can hardly be another way for us. But that is something that we, like the Corinthians, are most reluctant to accept. Yes, the scripture says, one day we shall reign with him, provided that we suffer with him. And Jesus said that God's blessing in the Sermon on the Mount, his approval, rests on the poor in spirit, on those who mourn over their spiritual condition, on those who know that they're hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness and don't sit back and say, we are full. On those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. As someone has said, lifetime is training time for reigning time. Now, which model of ministry are we following? Which do we think is the norm for the Christian? Paul's biting words challenge us as they did the Corinthians two millennia ago. But Paul's aim is not really to destroy them, to humiliate them. As he says, it's not even to shame them. He writes out of love. So notice thirdly and finally a third picture that emerges in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. A father and his children. Look what he says. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children... 
Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. The guardian in the ancient world was usually a slave who was entrusted with responsibility for looking after the children in a home. Maybe getting them to and from school, making sure they were reasonably educated and fed and cared for. And Paul says, there are those in a church who function like that. A spiritual guardian, as it were, overseeing the spiritual development and protection of new Christians. But though their role is important, it's not unique. A person may have many guardians. He says 10,000 here, the Greek word is myriad, from which we get myriad. But he says, you only have one spiritual father. And he says, in the case of you Christians in Corinth, I am your spiritual father. And you are my spiritual children. Why? Because it was through my preaching that you came to new birth in Christ. Now, Paul is not claiming the role of a father as some kind of patriarchal figure of authority, let alone some particular male image. Indeed, Jesus himself said, Matthew 23, 9, you should call no one father. No, the meaning of the metaphor is twofold. First of all, it's to urge them to imitate him and not these other guardians who'd come into the church at Corinth. We say, don't we, like father, like son. Maybe like mother, like daughter. And Paul is quite happy, notice this, for them to use him as their role model of what it means to be a Christian. We're very hesitant to do that, aren't we? We say to new Christians, don't follow me, follow Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I wonder how many of us are prepared to say that. Imitate my lifestyle, which is the way of the cross that I've just described to you. David Pryor writes helpfully, the Corinthians had not seen Jesus in the flesh. They had no Bible, but they'd seen Paul. And the only way in which people will see the life of Jesus lived out and modelled is in his people. I mentioned about those of you doing one-to-one Bible studies. I'd encourage more and more of you to do it. Find a younger Christian and say, let's meet once a week, once a fortnight. Okay, if you can't manage it, once a month. I'll tell you all I know about Jesus and I'll live it out as best I can. I'm not perfect, but I'm seeking to imitate Christ. So you watch me. Watch how I cope with adversity. Watch how I respond to the challenges of life. And just watch me and model me because I'm following Jesus. Paul says it's the norm in all the churches that we've planted. And the second reason he uses the picture of a father and his children, not just imitation, is to emphasise his love for them, his concern for their welfare. He says, I'm like your father. And when your children go astray, you have a particular care for them. I mean, if you see children doing something stupid, whoever you are, you try and help them. But if they're your own children, you have a particular responsibility to them. And Paul says, I'm your father. I've got to warn you, which means to bring someone back on track without being overbearing. To use living discipline. And as we see, sometimes that discipline, and we'll see it next week, God willing, when John, uh, in two weeks' time, when John takes it, 1 Corinthians 5, sometimes the discipline needs to be very severe. But it is always done out of love. There are those in the church at Corinth who are puffed up, inflated. And Paul says he needs to deflate them and bring them down to earth. He says the kingdom of God is not a matter just of words, but of power. He's not talking about words and miracles. He's talking about the word of the gospel, which is powerful enough to transform and change people. 
And so he says in conclusion, you need to choose. You need to respond to what I'm saying. I'm your father, I'm pleading with you to get back on track, to see things properly, to put first things first. Otherwise I'll come either with a rod or a gentle spirit. Paul Barnett comments, so let the people put things right beforehand so that he will come as a pastor and not as a policeman with apologies to one or two policemen in the congregation. So these are three authentic models of Christian ministry. A steward and his master, an apostle and his sufferings, a father and his children. They may not be and they certainly aren't the role model the world aspires to. But they are the word of God and it's God's estimation that counts. Let me finish. I've almost finished where I began. In Old Cairo Cemetery, there is a simple stone over a grave. I haven't been able to find out if anyone knows exactly where it is, but here's a mock-up which tells you what it says. Inscribed with the name Oswald Chambers, it simply states, a believer in Jesus Christ. And underneath, when he died, they made this gravestone, they put his name, they put a believer in Jesus Christ, and underneath it, they put the verse that transformed his life, Luke 11, verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Chambers asked God, as a Christian, Lord, if this is true, May it be true in my life. And he had a fresh experience, a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. You can read his story. And I went to the same conclusion that only the Holy Spirit can make us faithful stewards of Christ, suffering servants for Christ, and spiritual parents for other people. Even though they're not skills or attributes, the world may count very highly. You want to be a faithful steward? You need the indwelling Holy Spirit. You want to be a suffering servant? You'll need the indwelling Holy Spirit to help you. You want to be a spiritual parent who has lots of spiritual children? The Holy Spirit can make you that if you will ask Him. And it is God's estimation and judgment that will finally count. And now be interested on the day of judgment whenever it might be. Who knows how God may judge an obscure Baptist preacher from Scotland and the President of the United States of America. Or the world says, what is earth is the connection between an obscure Baptist preacher and the most powerful man in the world? But God's estimation of those lives may be different. I don't know. I make no judgment on certainly on George Bush who seems to follow Christ and I pray for him and what about your life and mine you may say well I'm just an ordinary person I really compared with even an obscure Baptist preacher my life doesn't amount to anything listen if you fulfill the gifts that God has given you if you're faithful to what God has called you to do that's all he asks of you and by his grace by his grace maybe one day you'll say well done good and faithful servant Enter the joy of your Lord. Did not Jesus say about Judgment Day, many who were first will be last. And many who are last will be first. I often think about that and I'm challenged by it.
Let's pray together.